0: Welcome to a special invitation from the Northeast Georgia History Center. Join us for a delightful Valentine's Day tea on Saturday, February 10th, with seating options at 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. This isn't just your ordinary tea party. It's a journey through the heart of Valentine's Day history, accompanied by a hand-picked selection of fine teas and a delightful mix of sweet and savoury treats. Whether you're a history buff or just looking for a unique way to celebrate love, this event promises an engaging experience. Dive into the fascinating origins and evolution of Valentine's Day, all while savouring exquisite teas and delicious bites. Tickets are available for members at 35 and 45 for non-members. The experience doesn't end with the tea. Guests are also invited to tour our galleries and continue exploring the rich tapestry of history at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Visit wwwneghcorg events.
1: everyone and welcome back to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada Mae Ivester Education Center here. And today I have with me Brandon Books, the curator of the John L. Whaley Gallery at the Genesee Country Village and Museum. Thank you so much for being with me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's quite a pleasure.
1: So can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a curator?
2: Absolutely. So I, again, my name is Brandon Brooks. I I work as curator of the John L. Whaley Gallery, and I've been in this position since March of 2020. So crazy time to start a completely new career. Before that, I was working for just over a decade in the mental health uh, sector here in Rochester, New York, and my education is actually in mental health. However, I am originally from the Genesee Valley region. And when I was pursuing my undergraduate at Adelphi down in New York, I took several classes at the Met. And that's when that museum germ was sort of planted in my mind. And I got to see behind the scenes their vaults, you know, how the objects were cared for, different curators of different departments. Um, and that was through uh, Maya Maratoff, who I believe is still one of the curators at the Met, as well as a professor of art history at Adelphi. And uh, around 2015, 2016, I reached out to Genesee Country Village Museum to the then curator Patricia Tice. And I expressed, you know, my interest, you know, I, I love old things. I love old clothes. I love artwork. I love antiques. How can I get more involved? And That turned into a volunteer position, which turned into an internship, which turned into a position. And about five years into working with Patricia, I had learned the ins and outs of curation, object care, uh, fashion history through Patricia, and just voracious reading, and the University of YouTube, quite honestly. So it was a lot of hard work, a lot of passion and interest. And I, you know, I know this sounds scary. I don't mean to scare any young people, but I was also at the right place at the right time. Um, So that uh, serendipity really played a big role in this career life change for me, quite frankly.
1: I, I feel that because I also was hired to my position in 2020, in May of 2020. To come on in that time was just kind of like, wow, okay, what are we doing? People are not at our museums. So how do we reach people digitally and keep going and keep our funding up? Um, and also, I, I also enjoy attending the University of YouTube. It's it's a wonderful place. Um, you can find so many things. <laughs> so what does a typical day look like for you as a curator? And what are some of your main responsibilities?
2: Great question. So a day-to-day, my It really depends on what time of the year I'm in, because if I'm in the spring, it's really exhibit mode. So that, you know, really from Indigenous Peoples Day until Mother's Day, that is when the gallery itself is usually has limited open hours. So as soon as Indigenous Peoples Day comes, I am returning loans to anyone who lent us objects to whatever the current exhibit was for that open season. I am dismantling the exhibit, I am doing condition reports on all the objects, putting them back into storage. That's really what I'm doing on-site, off-site, at home, because the job does not end uh, at good old five o'clock. At home, I am researching, I'm writing the next exhibit, I am coordinating with sister institutions, historical societies private collectors and collections to fill in sort of thematic holes in the exhibit, whatever next year's exhibit is going to be. So that's really one of the biggest challenges, I would say with this, with the role as curator, is unless you work at like the Met or the Louvre or the VNA, your collection isn't, you don't have everything in your collection. I have to identify what the thematic holes are and find objects to fill that void. A lot of exhibit ideas or concepts can be information-rich but object-poor. And people don't come to museums because they want to read a book on a wall. They want to see the object with the supplemental information next to it. So that there's a lot of inter-institutional and intra-institutional collaboration that goes on on a day-to-day basis, on a month-to-month basis, on a year-to-year basis. So that's sort of like the nitty-gritty of curation and exhibit work. On top of that, I'm developing innovative programming. I'm building connections with our community members. And I'm I'm looking at auctions and looking to expand our collection and really the the interpretive breadth of our collection. So there's, I mean, we could talk for an hour about just what goes into the job day to day, but that's really sort of a, a one minute snippet of what goes on on a day to day basis in this role.
1: Now, you mentioned expanding your collection. So can you tell us a little bit about your collection and then how does your museum go about expanding that and collecting new objects?
2: Absolutely. So, we have, I would say, like three main collections here at Genesee Country Village Museum. So, one is the fine art collection. So, that is the sporting art, the wildlife art that John Whaley himself, being an avid sports person and an outdoorsman, traveled the world collecting across the 20th century. So, these are names that you're going to, some of which you'll be familiar with, like Autobahn, Tunicliffe, Carl Rungius. Lee Frederick Remington, Bob Kuhn, big names in both European and American sporting and wildlife art. And we also have the historic house collection. So the houses in our historic village themselves, they are accessioned into our collection. All of the objects that curate those homes, depending on whatever decade you're in in the 19th century, all of those objects are part of the permanent collection as well. So if they're like glass or metal, they can stay out during the winter and in the summer. But if they are paintings or textiles or objects that are more susceptible to temperature changes, you know, it's frigid up here in the winter, like two degrees Fahrenheit. In the summer, it can be 95 and, you know, 80% humidity. So great difference in temperature and humidity will bring those objects back in before the temperature changes. And, it you know, in Rochester, it could be 30 degrees one day, 80 degrees the next day. So your sinuses are in a constant state of torture <laughs> living up here. I mean, we don't want our objects to go through that same amount of torture. So we bring them into the vault. And then, of course, we have the Bruce and Susan Green costume collection, which in 2010, when we purchased it from Susan, it consisted of 3,500 objects. I'd say in the past 13 years, it has expanded to about 4,000 to 4,500 objects. So the way we expand the collection, we are very blessed to have donors who who will bring objects to us, will help identify them. If they don't meet our collection mission, which is mainly 19th century, we will point that donor in a good direction for another collection, historical society or museum, um, because we don't want objects to be lost to history, thrown away, and uh in a private collection, you know, someone is collecting it, taking care of it, that's great. But in a private collection, those objects are no longer a public asset, unless you happen to know that private collector and can go into their home and look at their collection. Um, so we'll point them in multiple directions to furnish those uh individual, those generous people with a place that could be more appropriate. If we are like, you know, to be vulgar, if we're just buying the object ourselves. Um, we will go to au- auctions, antique stores, all sorts of places. Now, where are we expanding our collection? Um is also an important question to answer. We are a lot of museums are playing a game of catch up, quite frankly. For decades, one story and one narrative of American history was collected and that being upper to upper middle class, white, cisgendered, heteronormative populations. So we, like many museums, we hold ourselves accountable for what the collection currently is and expanding upon that collection. So I would say that our collections currently represent that limited view of history, but we are working with community organizations, leaders, and knowledge keepers of different communities and really getting guidance from people of those communities, how to accurately and respectfully represent those communities in our collection. So that that has been very exciting to sort of finally tell the truth in a lot of ways, a more accurate tapestry of American and in our case, a history of upstate New York and the Genesee Valley.
1: That's amazing. And it's something that a lot of museums are again, really, as you said, playing catch up with, um, of trying to make sure and and fulfill their mission, but also to tell a wider story, the whole story Mm -hmm. of what happened in said region, place, or at said event. Now, preservation is also a crucial part of curating historical fashion or any of these historical objects. Oh, yeah. How do you ensure the long-term conservation (laughs) of delicate and or fragile items because I can just imagine some like delicate fabrics and also this is one of those bias kind of things of rich people's clothes tend to survive because they can wear them like twice and then throw them in a closet and forget about them until it's 50 years later and somebody's cleaning it out so how do you even go about finding like working class outfits because even trying to find pictures or, or things like how do you try to to expand that?
2: Oh yeah, you'll be you'll be hard pressed to find because those are the objects that are used the most and then they survive the least. So you're absolutely right. There is a conservation and preservation bias with many museum collections where you're really preserving what was used the least. So does it really represent what the world looked like? Not really. So to answer your two-part question, we are very lucky that we have we have climate-controlled vaults on our premises. We have two of them. So any object, be it artwork, textile, fashion, or home good item that cannot withstand severe temperature changes, we keep safe in those vaults. You, I had the pleasure of giving you a tour of the Bruce and Susan Green collection, so you saw all of the custom-made mounts we make for each individual piece of clothing. We are not the Met, we are not the VNA. We do not have an industrialist endowment from hundred years ago to to finance expensive archival materials. So we find ways to to be cost effective in the archival materials that we are using. So and we create our custom mounts. You know, if we bought one of those mounts custom made for a, a bonnet or a gown, it could cost like 200 bucks per mount. And when you have like 200 hats, that adds up real darn quick. So you best find a way to to support and store that object with archival materials without that big price point. Um, So we, you know, and that will also influence, you know, the stability of the object will also influence not only how it's stored, but whether it should be exhibited. We have an excellent collection manager by the name of Amanda Wilk on our staff, who is very essential, um, both in her job and specifically in sort of the the picking out of objects for exhibition. And, you know, if it is not stable enough to be exhibited, me wanting to see it and to show the world this amazing object is not enough to damage the object and put it on display. So we, you know, the, another job of the curator working with a collections manager is finding ways to to keep this public asset accessible to the public without threatening or damaging its structural integrity so we can preserve it for decades and hundreds of years to come. Uh, so instead of sort of, you know mounting a gown on a form, you can display it on a lean board or in a study drawer or with very intricate pictures online for online exhibits. We're very excited for 2024 for many reasons, just the eclipse being one of them here in upstate New York in the path of totality in April. Um, But also Amanda Wilk is um, the collections manager has found a way for us to finally get our collections online as an online database. Um, So we will begin that process. And again, like for objects that are really unstable and should not be exhibited or handled or mounted or moved, that online database is going to keep that object accessible to the public. And I believe there was a second part of your question and I'm forgetting what that was. Oh, I was just talking
1: about like working class objects and trying to acquire yes. those as you were talking yes. about expanding your collection. of So preserving those and then also acquiring those because they just, they, they seem to disappear.
2: They do, they do, History. and I, I think it's because I mean they're, they're again they're used the most, so they survive the least. When you get them, when you happen to, when you happen upon an object object like that, be it through an auction house like know, like Augusta Auctions, or sometimes even eBay, which can be a little dubious, you know. Sometimes the seller doesn't know what they're selling, or they think they know, and they've got it their way off or at an antique store or a donor. If you have a rare example of a working class garment or like an at-home working garment, that's a gem of your collection. It may not be the most visually exciting, but narratively, and if you were to visually examine the object, to me, that's one of the most exciting objects because they tend to be restyled, unpicked, and re-sewn in an alternative, more up-to-date, Fashion. They tend to be patched up and repaired repeatedly. You can see the wear. You can see the use. Like these, um, I always say this that sort of material textiles are the most intimate form of material culture in my mind because they are literally and figuratively imbued with an essence of the past, be that perfume or B.O., quite frankly. So when you get a working class object, not only is it imbued with that ineffable, essence of the past, but you can see how much work and care and attention went into the preservation of that object within its life use. And then we are able to sort of continue that process uh, with how we store and exhibit the object. So for instance, a few years ago, we received a donation from uh Sackett's Harbor and most of it was uh from it's from an upper middle class, an an elite family of that of the nineteenth century. Most of the clothing pieces were splendid in the sense that they're made out of like luxurious silks and brocades and they have, you know, hand woven Honiton lace on them and not that machine lace from good old John Heathcote and his netting. But they also had some working class dresses working class in the sense that they were worn by the staff that this family employed in their home so it wasn't it wasn't even like a, a uniform a maid's uniform it was sort of um a a maid to the maid some a maid that would not you would not want to be seen by the sort of front house family or the front house staff it was sort of a uh, this isn't an American term, but almost like a scullery maid, like a maid to the maids. So that was incredibly exciting. And it's a a basic pink cotton dress. There's actually two of them. And you could see that it originally was from the 1860s, and it was adapted over the course of 30 years into the 1890s by the multiple people that wore that dress, those two dresses. So They're very rare. You have to search. There's a lot of luck involved with finding very rare objects. There's also, as you said, you know, the pretty things tend to survive the most for a multitude of reasons. So some people might, you know, go up to grandma's attic and find like, oh, this old, ugly, worn out, you know, dress and it's made out of this white and blue check. Like it, it's, it wasn't expensive. I'm going to throw it out, you know? So a lot of things also get lost to time. So there are many factors working against you and finding those, those working class everyday objects. Sorry, long-winded answers, yeah, I, long-winded sure answers. Excited. You get that with me.
1: Oh, it's all good. That's great. <laughs> it makes my job easy. Um, <laughs> So I am so excited to hear that y'all are putting your collections online because I, again, I was very privileged to, and you were so gracious to get to show me around some of the the, the vaults and the costume collection. And uh, it's so wonderful because I know you also have been patterning different stays um, that you have them put the patterns online as a resource yes. for people, which is absolutely amazing. And I've also gotten to see two of your exhibits that you've done with the costume collection. One was the Great American Wedding, which mm-hmm. was amazing. And I actually, it was right when I had just gotten engaged and I was just like wedding fever. It was wonderful. Uh, and <laughs> then I also got to see the one, the most recent one, Becoming gendered. Um, yes. So I enjoyed both of those so much and every, all the work that you your staff put into to creating those. I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit what goes into choosing a theme and then interpreting this clothing because there's so many different aspects of clothing it's the most as you said I love the way you phrase it the most intimate really of Mm -hmm. material culture is clothing so how do you go about deciding on a theme and then interpreting that
2: great question so one of the the pillars of uh, the museum's mission is is uh accuracy but also relevance so we tend to think of the past as being in the past, and we sort of reach this plateau of modernity where everything is just better, and we know better in the future. It's all connected to the past, and some things in the past, they just did better than we do today, quite frankly. So I find it exciting finding those connections, those relevant threads that lead you you know, from the past to the future and from the future to the past. So particularly with the Becoming Gendered exhibit, as many individuals know, especially if you're living here in America, the concept of gender, what that means, what that looks like, what that should or should not look like is, I wouldn't exactly say under debate, but it is contested. And there is a real anxiety, a societal, social, religious, cultural anxiety, it seems in America with any sort of real or perceived threat to an established order of gender norms. And particularly when you're looking at fashion, especially historic fashion, because you're you're seeing an entire century, you can see how perceptions, concepts, visualizations, constructions of gender have changed across those 100 years for men and women and anyone in between or neither or both. And So it's easy from a historian's perspective to see, you know, gender is a construct that does change and ebb and flow across time. Whereas when you're in time, the way we are now, it can seem like a timeless truth that never changes and has always been sort of this way or that way. So using the collection to explore Uh, modern anxieties and also to relate them to past anxieties is a great way to explore those questions from a fact-based sort of irrefutable object-based truth. We are using truths from the past to discuss questions that they were discussing in the past and we still are discussing today. So let's take like the 1890s bicycle craze, for instance. Uh, Rochester really led the charge with the bicycle craze. And we we established th- hundreds of miles of what they called side paths. And many people, many women wanted to bicycle. Suddenly you could travel tens of miles in one afternoon without a horse, without a chaperone, all powered by your your own legs and your own ambition. And, and, you know, Susan B. Anthony is actually quoted as saying, the bicycle has done more for women's emancipation than many, you know, uh, than anything else, so to speak. That's not the actual quote, but it's something around (laughs) that. And I, you know, a lot of the anxieties that were being advertised in the 1890s about women riding bicycles and particularly wearing pants or what knickerbockers or bloomers to ride these bicycles, you know, people were saying, you know, This is going to upend the bedrock of society, which is the family unit. You know, men are going to be home taking care of children. Women are going to be riding their bicycles with other women, and they're going to be smoking and having fun. And they're going to, this is going to usurp man's, you know, righteous God-given role. And it's going to, society is going to dissolve, you know? And what if, what if uh, you're walking your kid down the street and a woman whizzes by on her bicycle in knickerbockers, and you're going to confuse that child. Is you know they're not going to know if it's a man or a woman. And some of the very same language that they used in the 1890s to deride, no pun intended, women riding bicycles and wearing knickerbockers. They're using that same language now to talk about drag in certain parts of this country. Um, so the more things change, the more things stay the same. And we, we try to pick topics that have that relevant thread from the past right into the, into the future. And we try to help our visitors make these connections between today's culture and the 19th century culture of America.
1: I have a perfect example of something very similar to what you're talking about. And I was just giving the other day a presentation about Victorian holiday traditions. Mm-hmm. And there is a photo of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and all of their little kids around the Christmas tree. And we we're talking oh, yes. about the, the popularity of the Christmas tree and all of that. Then there's the American version versus the British version because they were like, oh, no, we have to get rid of their like royalness. Yes. Um, and I was asking the the audience to spot the difference. like. And one of them said, oh, the, the girl's little girl's dress is longer on this one. And I'm like, well, actually, that's a little boy. And because it was one of those tunics that comes down yeah. over the bloomers, which was what little boys wore. But it was just one of those things where it's like the, the idea of like what a child should wear. Uh, a little boy wearing like this skirt like thing was like, yeah, they were like, what? I was like. Okay, and moving on because we're we're talking about yes. Christmas, and we will get into gender. Yeah, and we, later, as
2: I'm sure you saw, but... we we talk about the the frocked boys in becoming gendered, it, it, and really... we have a we have a portrait on loan to us from the Holland Land Office Museum of a, a little boy in 1853 who's frocked. His name is Charles Willis, and I can't tell you how many children would come into the exhibit and read the label and say that's a boy he's wearing a dress you know i even had like you know little five-year-olds little five-year-old boys say i wouldn't be caught dead wearing that i'd rather die than wear a frock so it's like wow like this sort of the gendering of children is happening younger and younger and i mean if you if you trace you know the breaching age for boys in the 19th century as the century progresses it gets younger and younger we're gendering the bodies of children at a younger and younger age nowadays we do it in utero with gender reveal parties you know before they're even in this world we're putting these sort of gendered expectations upon their body essentially
1: yeah so interesting just to to kind of see like this idea that some people have of like, oh well, it's always been this way, and it was like, well, actually, it was very different just a hundred years ago. But you would assume that it's it, sometimes people assume that it's more of our modern expectations, and they're putting those on historical people.
2: Yeah, which is not true. They were doing it just like just like we are, quite frankly. So,
1: <laughs> so um, as we start to wrap up this podcast, can you give us like any what what would be your advice? Uh, to someone who is aspiring to work in the field of historic fashion or in curation, what what, what would you say to them?
2: My advice would be th- this is a small world museum. You know, there are museums all over the world, but museum work is very, it's a small world. And once you're in, you're sort of in, and you get to know all of your coworkers and colleagues within your city, within your state, within your region, very, very quickly. So, it is, this is one of those fields where you can still email an individual person. And that is sort of your first step in the right direction. Like if you are able to donate just one afternoon a week to your local curator, that, I mean, that's how I got, I made my in. I came on Saturdays and now, you know, six, seven years later, I'm in that, this honored position that I adore. So you know, emailing curators, volunteering your time, getting to know your local historical societies. Almost every town in America has an historic society or a, a town historian. Contact that person. Say, you know, I'm interested in history. I don't exactly know where to begin. Like, it's such, it's a small group of people that are sort of the protectors of a macrocosm of information. So you can tell them, like, I'm interested in history. I don't really know what aspect of history I'm in, I should explore. Can you tell me what goes on here? And you can explore those possibilities. Perhaps you know exactly what part of history you want to explore. Find a curator or a, an historic society that can that can give you that opportunity. Um, let's say you live in the middle of nowhere, however, and you're like, I want to know about historic fashion, but I live in a town that has a town historian and there's no old fashioned here then that that might require some long distance communication. You may, you know, have to, this sounds scary, especially when you're young or very established, like you may have to move, but if that is what your heart desires, it's absolutely worth it. I would say, you, you know, whether, whatever aspect of history you're interested in, reading voraciously will help you and take you miles ahead of the rest. I'm forgetting exactly what this philosophical concept is, but you'll start to read and you'll be like, oh, I I know everything about this now. And then you'll read a little bit more and you'll realize, I don't know anything about this that I thought I did. Um, so the more, never get to a place where you think you know every aspect about the history of something, just keep reading and you'll learn that we we really know nothing about that in many regards. That sort of humble openness to new information will take you far as well. But again, it's it's a small niche industry. So if you can find a curator who is willing to give you their time, which there's so much to do as a curator, any volunteer or intern is a godsend for me, that can get you very, very far. Especially, you know, we're also at this time where the older generation is about to age out, so this is very—it's an auspicious opportune time for sort of the iron is hot for you to strike it, and you should be able to—you know—they're going to you know, they're gonna be looking for young blood essentially to take over these roles in the next ten to fifteen years. So this is a very auspicious time to sort of make make your way in through volunteering, through interning through getting, you know, even a a docent position in a museum can lead to those connections.
1: Absolutely. A lot of the people who work at our history center started as volunteers. (laughs) Our executive director now actually started as a volunteer here. We have so many people who started as interns or people like me who would just do about one event a month. Like I would I would come for homeschool days and I did that for years until this position opened up and I was able to step into it really. And I think that is across the museum field, the more I've been talking to people, that is exactly how it goes.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's such a small group of people. If you volunteer your time and you're reliable and passionate, they will take notice of you and they will make a position for you. Or you will be the, if they can't make a position, their budget is limited as a lot of nonprofit historical societies are when someone retires or leaves they will be like we know you know we know that person john smith or sally is so reliable let's get like let's just fill this position and we know her she knows the collection she knows the staff it's a shoe in sometimes Absolutely. literally if you're in historic fashion <laughs> so. <laughs> sorry couldn't let that pun go <laughs> yes
1: so for our last question can you tell us how you've seen the field of curation, historical fashion curation, object curation evolve during your career and where do you see its future going?
2: Great question. So again, I've I've only been in this position for since 2020, so I'm about to enter in 24 my fifth season um and that first season in 2020 was semi closed. But I have seen, again, really because of the pandemic, a lot of digital evolution with collections. There's a lot of virtual components that people are really exploring now from virtual presentations, talks, and lectures to sort of a a discussion of objects digitally through digital online accessible archives and collections essentially, which we're exploring and creating in 2024 finally. And also innovative ways to tell, really broaden the story that you're telling. That's the biggest change I am seeing is museums and really the millennials coming into museums and now Gen Z coming into the museums. We want the real story. Um, So museums are, are playing that game of catch up and expanding the narrative that they're able to explore, they're able to exhibit, they're able to interpret and present. Um, so, that is one of the biggest changes I'm seeing, both the technology used to tell the stories and also the broadening of the stories being told themselves. And I, I couldn't be more excited, quite frankly.
0: Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on site programs are made possible by the Ada Mae Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.